0: Hey, folks, and welcome back to The Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we are continuing our series on biblical worldview with James Jordan, and here Jordan's going to be discussing the world of exile. We do have a very exciting announcement to make today, and that is our Theopolis Liturgy and Psalter releases tomorrow, October 31st. This contains the liturgies that we use in our courses and in our fellows program, as well as a collection of psalms translated by James Jordan with psalm chant settings as well. For more information and to order this liturgy and psalter, you can check out the link in the show notes and our announcements on social media as well. We want to thank you so much for listening, and we hope that you enjoy this time of teaching. And here is James Jordan discussing biblical worldview and the world of the exile.
1: The worlds of exile and restoration. We need to look at the new heavens and new earth that came about as a result of the collapse of the Davidic Kingdom and then the new heavens and new earth that came about in connection with the restoration of that Kingdom. in its new form. Uh, possibly these should be seen as one that uh, when Solomon Solomon's kingdom fell apart then we begin to have a rebuilding of the world. I think that probably is the case. I see this as one new heavens and earth that begins to be rebuilt as God rebuilds the world under Daniel and then restores his people to the land and restores them to the temple and to their service only in a new and more powerful way than ever before. Let's look then at the apostasy and decline of the Davidic kingdom. And the first thing we have to notice is that after the building of the tremendously beautiful temple and the establishment of Solomon's kingdom in all of its wisdom, uh, Solomon falls from that glorious position. Just as Adam fell, so Solomon falls. After the temple is built, The ministry of the kingdom begins. The queen of Sheba comes and here is Solomon's great wisdom. Uh, Hiram, king of Tyre, and others form alliances with him and it seems that the gospel is now going to go out to the world. But then Solomon falls into sin. And his fall begins in chapter 10, verse 14, where we read that the weight of gold that came into Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold. Now by itself, that would not tell us a great deal. But the number 666 is familiar to us in that it's the number of the beast later on in scripture and is picked up from here. To understand Solomon's fall, we need to look at the laws of kingship in Deuteronomy 17. The king was given three rules in verses 16 and 17 of Deuteronomy 17. He was told that he was not to multiply horses for himself. In other words, he was not to build up a big military machine. Secondly, he was not to multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor, thirdly, was he to increase greatly increase silver and gold for himself. 666 talents of gold is several billion dollars per year of gold. And Solomon begins to multiply gold. It's interesting in verse 16 that we're told that Solomon used this gold to make 200 large shields of beaten gold using 600 shekels of gold on each large shield. These are, in addition, he made 300 shields of beaten gold using three minutes of gold on each shield and put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. Well, this is multiplying gold. And we'll have to see what happens to these shields. Solomon's fall then comes as a result of presumption and of seizing glories and honors that God had withheld from him in God's wisdom. That's the first stage of his fall. In verse 26 of 1 Kings 10, we see that he gathered chariots and horsemen, had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen. So he begins to multiply horses. In fact, in direct violation of Deuteronomy 17, he imports horses from Egypt. Verse 28. And finally, the third law of kingship that he breaks, chapter 11, verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, and they're listed, and then it says that they turned his heart away. It came about when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not complete with the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. So Solomon falls, and with him, God, with that fall and the fall of the kingdom, God begins to act to tear down the heavens and the earth that he had given to them the glorious cosmos kingdom estate immediately the kingdom is torn in half we read in chapter the rest of chapter 11 that God raised up Jeroboam to trouble Solomon all the days of Solomon's reign and in chapter 12 we find that after Solomon dies the kingdom is split in half the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom and thus the polity of Israel is ripped in half never to be restored and the heavens and the earth begins to collapse is torn apart not only so but once the polity of the heavens and the earth begins to be torn apart and you have war in heaven because you have war between the kings uh, let me make a parenthesis here and remind you that we've seen that the sun moon and stars refer to political rulers the powers of the heavens which are shaken from time to time and these heavenly powers then become Rehoboam and Jeroboam that are in conflict with one another. And thus there's war in the heavenlies, the political heavenlies, and the world begins to tear apart once again. In order to make sure that everyone knew what was going on, God brought the king of Egypt to the land Shishak, Shishak, however you want to pronounce that, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. You read about that in First Kings 14 starting in verse 25. In the fifth year of King Rehoboam, Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem and he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord as well as the treasures of the king's house. He took everything. And then we're told specifically that he took all the shields of gold that Solomon had made. So what happened to all those shields of gold that Solomon made out of the money he should not have collected? Well, they're taken away and uh, the temple itself is disgraced The gold is taken out of it, and it's no longer the beautiful, glorious environment that once it was. Now, if we continue to read through the books of Kings and Chronicles, we'll find that there are ups and downs. The temple is repaired from time to time, but it's never as glorious as it once was because there's never anywhere the amount of gold and adornment that Solomon was able to put into it. The full collapse of the Davidic heavens and earth doesn't come until the exile, And now at the end of the book of Kings and at the end of the book of Chronicles, we read how Nebuchadnezzar came in and subjugated the kings of Israel, carried off the spoils of the temple, and dismantled the temple itself. Everything was burned down. Eventually, the city of Jerusalem was destroyed, and the entire system collapsed. Well, now we come to the exile, and now the world will have to be rebuilt again. Before we do look at that rebuilding of the world, however, we should look at the situation in exile. What's happened? Well, the garden is gone because the sanctuary is destroyed, and the land is also gone because the people have been removed from it, and new people have been moved in. Uh, It was the policy of Nebuchadnezzar to move whole populations around, and when he moved the Jews out of Palestine, then he moved other people in, and they intermarried with the poorest of the Israelites who remained and became the Samaritans. At any rate, they've lost the land and they've lost the sanctuary and they're now scattered in the world. And it's at this time that the prophecies of Ezekiel take place. We want to spend some time looking at Ezekiel because Ezekiel will give us a visionary picture of the dismantling of the heavens and the earth, particularly of the heavens as God departs from the temple. The message of the book of Ezekiel is that even though the temple is torn down, Yet the true temple is in heaven, and they should never have thought that God really had to dwell in the Jerusalem temple, and they had him in a box and could do as they pleased. They should have realized all along that the earthly heavens were but a copy, as the book of Hebrews says, of the true heavens, the heaven of heavens above. Well, in Ezekiel chapter 1, uh, verse 1, it says, it came about in the 30th year. On the fifth day of the fourth month, when I was by the river Chebar among the exiles, the heavens opened and I saw visions of God. Now this is uh, Ezekiel was among the first people taken out of Palestine into exile. The temple itself has not yet been destroyed, but the people are living, uh, his people are living in the land of Mesopotamia. And the horrible question that they confront is that they're not living in the holy land anymore. They don't have access to the temple anymore. And so, can God minister to them? Do they have access to God? And the answer is yes, because Ezekiel sees in a vision the true cherubim and the true throne of God that continues to be available to them and is with them even in exile. Ezekiel is of the high priestly family, and he is the true high priest of Israel at this point. He is inaugurated into his ministry in the 30th year, according to the law, And thus he enters into the Holy of Holies, as only the high priest can, and sees the cherubim. And he is one of the few people in the Old Testament ever to be allowed to do that. His vision is of the cherubim chariot and God above it ministering to the people in exile. And that was an encouragement to them. Now, if we look over at Ezekiel chapter 8, we'll see his vision of God's departing the temple. It says in chapter eight, It came about in the sixth year, on the fifth day of the sixth month, I was sitting in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me. These are the exiles. And the hand of God fell on me. And I looked and beheld a likeness as the appearance of a man. From his loins and downwards there was the appearance of fire. From his loins and upward the appearance of brightness like that of glowing metal. And he stretched out the form of a hand and caught me by a lock of my head. And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven. And brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate where there was an idol of jealousy that provokes jealousy. And so God uh, is being provoked by this idolatry. And Ezekiel says in verse 4 of Ezekiel 8, Behold, the glory of the God of Israel was is there, like the appearance that I saw on the plain. In other words, the cherubim and the wheels, the chariot that he saw before. Now, in chapter 8, God shows Ezekiel all the abominations and sin that the people are committing. And he shows him that he intends to destroy the sanctuary because of their sins. And then we have a vision of the glory of God departing from the temple, leaving it desolate so that he will no longer protect it and be a wall of fire around it. And the wicked will come in and destroy it. In chapter nine, verse three, it says, "In the glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple." And that seems to be mean that he left the holy of holies and came out to the doorway. This is said again in chapter ten, and in chapter ten, verse nineteen, it says, eighteen and nineteen, it says, "The glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim." That's the chariot. And when the cherubim departed they lifted their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight while the wheels beside with the wheels beside them and they stood at the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house and the God of Israel hovered over them and then they depart and so the spirit and the Lord leave the temple. Uh, and we can see this in chapter 11, verses 22 and 23, the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them. The glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. The glory of the God went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain east of the city. And so, it departs and moves to the east where the people are in exile. Now, now that the temple has been left empty and desolate, uh, Nebuchadnezzar will come in and destroy it. But, but, uh, Ezekiel is able to give the exiles hope and tells them that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. That even now, while they sit in exile, Daniel is at work rebuilding the world and that there will be a new temple. And that's found in chapters 40 to 48 of Ezekiel, which close with a vision of a new temple established on the earth. Like Moses, Ezekiel is given the pattern. And he writes down what the pattern of the temple is to be. But unlike Moses, uh, What is actually built is not exactly like what Ezekiel saw. Moses saw the pattern on the mountain and he came down and made an exact copy of it. The vision that Ezekiel sees is something that really could not be built. It's thoroughly idealized, but it is designed to show the people that in spite of appearances, the new heavens and earth that are being inaugurated are actually more glorious than what had existed before. Now let's look, thirdly, at this new heavens and earth in the vision of Ezekiel 40 through 48. These are chapters that are seldom read and studied because they're pretty repetitious and somewhat obscure, but hopefully after listening to this tape, uh, you'll be motivated to read them and perhaps study them out a little bit and will be better able to understand them. Right away we're told, uh, in chapter 40, verse 2, in the visions of God, He brought me into the land of Israel and set me on a very high mountain. And on it to the south there was a structure like a city. Well, by now we ought to know what this very high mountain is. It's the the mountain. It's the Garden of Eden mountain. It's Mount Zion. It's the mountain of God. It's the place where man meets God. The top of the pyramid. Now, there is a diagram, diagram number 17, gives us a reconstruction of the plan of Ezekiel's temple area, and it's pretty complicated, and we won't spend a great deal of time looking at it, but you see in the center, right in the center is the altar, and then moving um, to the west, we pass through the doors into the holy place, and then to the holy of holies, which is behind those two lines. And so those are the same as in Solomon's temple, but the outer area is much expanded. Notice how prominent the doors are, the doorways of this temple. There are doorways into the outer court and then there are doorways into the inner court. And these are described at great length. And it seems uh, that this this has a twofold idea. There are guard rooms along these doors so that the wicked are kept out. And yet they are doors so that the world is invited to come in. Uh, notice that the inner court where the altar is, is still the earthly sanctuary, but it's just a drawing near here that we didn't have before. Uh, the final feature of the diagram is that the the bronze ocean, which I have marked here as the sea, and you'll notice that it has been turned over on its side and there's a river flowing out, probably connecting to those chariots that we saw. In Solomon's temple, carrying the water from the sea out to the world. This is described in chapter 47. Now, in chapter 43 of Ezekiel, we see the Lord returning to this temple. Ezekiel says this temple is going to be built, and the Lord will come back into it. In chapter 43, it says, "...He led me to the gate, the gate facing toward the east, and behold the glory of the God of Israel." was coming from the way of the east. His voice was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. It was like the appearance of the vision which I saw, like the vision I saw when it came to destroy the city. The visions were like the visions I saw by the river Chebar, way back in chapter 1. And he says, I fell on my face, and the glory of the Lord came into the house by the way of the gate facing toward the east. the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the house. And so Ezekiel says that God will return. And this is a promise to the exiles that there will come a time when the temple will be rebuilt and God will return to it. Now, of course, the temple that's actually built is not anywhere near this big or glorious, but the promise that the people were able to hold to was that once they had it built, God would move back in and would establish his heaven on earth once again. That's the first part of Ezekiel's vision where he sees the actual temple itself, and heaven and the garden sanctuary are reestablished. Secondly, Ezekiel has a vision of the land. The vision of the land itself. And uh, in chapter 45, he is told to divide the land by lot for an inheritance, an portion of the land. And in verses 1 to 6, he's told about this holy portion, God's part of the land. And so in rebuilding the heavens and the earth in vision, we have rebuilt the tabernacle and the temple. Uh, the, uh, we've, rebu- we've rebuilt the temple, the Holy of Holies, which is a copy of the highest heavens, the holy place, which is a copy of the firmament heavens, and the courts, which are a copy of the Garden of Eden, the earthly sanctuary, and now we're out to the land. And part of the land is to be given to the Lord for the priests and Levites to live in. Diagram number 18 shows this. We see the priest's portion around the sanctuary and the Levite's portion uh, at something of a distance from them. And then part of the land is to be given to the prince as the territory of the prince. Uh, verse 7 of chapter 45, the prince shall have land on either side of the holy allotment and the property of the city adjacent to to the holy allotment and the property of the city on the west toward the west and on the east side toward the east in a length comparable to one of the portions. And this shall be his land for a possession in Israel. So my princes will no longer oppress my people. But the rest of the land will be given to the house of Israel according to their tribes. And so if we look at diagram 19, which is taken out of a German book, so you've got German words on here instead of English ones, we see the land itself Divided up again in a vision and given to the rest of the tribes and the rest of the people and that those divisions are given in chapter 48 all listed out Uh, The order of the tribes and their divisions notice that the tribal boundaries are totally gone everything here is uh, Abstract each tribe gets a little slice of the land The reason the tribal boundaries are gone after the exile is that the tribes that all merged together during the exile and they had not been able to keep uh, separate tribal um, uh, well they had not been able to keep together as separate tribes and so they have just become one land of Israel and uh, there will no longer be any particular need for tribal territories and those territories will not be reestablished the only tribe that had kept itself separate in the genealogies for the most part was were the Levites but the rest of the tribes were just mingled together But in this ideal structure, the land will be given back to Israel and apportioned among the twelve tribes. Now, Ezekiel's visionary temple was not designed to be built, but it was designed rather to explain the true post-exilic situation. And it was designed to show that after the exile, there would be a tremendous improvement that the new heavens and the new earth in spite of appearances, would be more glorious and more powerful and greater and bigger than ever before. It would all be measured out. And the temple that God would build, even though it would look smaller and be less glorious in appearance, would actually be more powerful and more glorious in its influence. And if the people could keep Ezekiel's vision before their minds, then they would understand this and they would understand that the new heavens and new earth in which they were living was greater and more magnificent even than that of Solomon. So let's look finally at the new heavens and the new earth as they were actually constructed. And we have here the books of Daniel, Haggai, Zechariah, Nehemiah, and Ezra, which give us information about this, and we'll briefly survey them. In the book of Daniel, we see the new configuration of the world. Remember back in the uh, time after Noah that the world was organized primarily by city-states with priest-kings. We have entered into a period of nations, and now we are entering into a period of world empires. And Daniel, in his visions, is shown that the new stage of history, the new heavens and earth, will be a stage of history in which world empires will dominate the world. The world will be organized by these empires. And uh, he sees them in various visions (coughs) in terms of uh, the statue. uh, In Daniel chapter 2, the golden part of the statue is the empire of Babylon. And then there is the empire of the Persians, that of the Greeks, and finally that of Rome. And later on in the book of Daniel, he'll have visions in which these are seen as four beasts. Beasts. But each of these beasts is an empire, and we are into a new stage of world history. And Daniel shows us the world, the outer world, as opposed to the land, restructured and rebuilt in terms of empires. Now, how are God's people going to function in this new world? Well, they are going to have to be more evangelistic than they've been before. And if he refuses to sin and bow uh, before the idols, he and his friends, And God blesses him and brings Nebuchadnezzar to his knees in chapter 4 of Daniel. And Nebuchadnezzar is forced to convert and acknowledge the true God as the king of heaven. And Nebuchadnezzar doesn't live too long after that. And a new Babylonian king comes into play, Belshazzar. Belshazzar rebels against God and takes the furniture of the temple, all the golden vessels. This is in Daniel 5 and has his own orgy with them, and doesn't respect God Most High. And so God destroys him, and that very night uh, he is killed, and Darius the Mede receives the kingdom. In Daniel chapter 6, we see that Darius, uh, the Persian emperor, is moved against Daniel, but he also is persuaded to favor God's people. And the result of this uh, in chapter 6 verse 28 is that Daniel enjoys success in the reign of Darius and in the reign of Cyrus the Persian now it is Cyrus the Persian who will allow the people to go back into the land and so we have we see here the rebuilding of the world the reestablishment of the world and the actual uh, conversion or at least significant Christian influence over the leaders of the empires of the world And as a result of the rebuilding of the world, the people are allowed to go back into the land. Now, the book of Ezra describes this in terms of its historical uh, motion. Uh, Ezra talks about, gives us lists of those who went back. We can look at the book of Ezra briefly. and We see the rebuilding of the land under the sponsorship of the empire. This is definitely a new heavens and a new earth a totally new configuration from anything we've seen before. Uh, Ezra, uh, very first verse says, In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he sent a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing, saying, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, The Lord, Jehovah, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has appointed me to build him a house in Jerusalem, in Judah. And so then he tells the Jews that any of them who want to go back may do so. And he even sponsors them. And so the people return to the land and once they're back in the land, the land is restored, their home is restored, the land of Eden is restored, and they get to work building the temple. The people have returned to the land and the temple is being built. The books of Haggai and Zechariah uh, show this to us. The people initially were frustrated in their attempts to build the temple, and so they built their own houses first. Haggai and Zechariah are raised up by God to prophesy to the people and tell them to get back to work on the temple. The temple, says Haggai, is like a dead corpse in the middle of the nation and is spreading death to all around it. And the, the corpse of the temple house is spreading death of the temple to them and to the world. Now, what is contained in a very simple way in Haggai chapter 2 is given a tremendous expansion in the night visions of Zechariah 1 through 6. And I'd like for us to spend a few minutes here. Uh, I have prepared a I have given a long and detailed series of lectures on Zechariah 1 through 6, and these are available, but and they're they're noted in the uh, in the syllabus. Here I'd like just to survey them because it gives us a very good picture of the new heavens and new earth that are being inaugurated at this time and what a significant change it will be, and how more wonderful than ever before the kingdom of God is going to be in this period that we're entering into. So let's survey these night visions. The first vision is found in Zechariah chapter one, verses seven to seventeen. And what's of interest to us here it says in verse eight, I saw at night Behold a man riding on a red horse standing among myrtle trees in a ravine. And we're told that these horses patrol the earth and that they are soon going to go out and change the world. Now this vision happens as the sun is going down. Uh, There are eight night visions and they run through the hours of the night. Uh, The important thing happens at midnight as we'll see. And as the sun is going down, uh, these red horses appear among the myrtle trees. Now this is a vision of the earthly sanctuary. We're back in the Garden of Eden. Um, the details here, as I say, I've explored elsewhere, and you can get the tapes. But we're in the, we're in the garden. We're in the outer court of the temple. Zechariah is a priest. He is not a high priest, and so he's not going to go into the Holy of Holies. But he is one of the chief priests, one of the 24 chief priests, and he will spend his time explaining the outer court and also the holy place we'll be moving into the holy place and looking at the the lampstand at least and then we'll move back out into the outer court and we'll see the influences of the kingdom going forth so we begin here in the garden in the outer court and there are these chariots and horses remember well we don't actually have chariots here but we have horses Chariots are implied, and they will show up at the end of the vision. Remember that in the temple of Solomon, there were these ten chariots with the water, and that will be important to these visions. Now, the first thing that needs to be done in restoring the temple is to rebuild the altar. And the second vision, which is in chapter 1, verses 18 to 21, shows that. I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, there were four horns. And I said to the angel speaking with me, what are these? And he answered, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. What are these horns? Well, they're the horns of a pagan altar, the four horns of an altar. And paganism and apostasy, worshiping false gods at false altars, are what has scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And then the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? And the answer was, these will throw down the horns of the nations, the false idols, and they will scatter them. Now, what are these craftsmen going to do? Well, they're going to build the altar of the Lord. And when the four horns of God's altar are erected and lifted high and the people worship Him, then the horns of the altars of the nations will be cast down. And the Word of God and the truth will go out. So the first thing it's going to do is the altar is going to be rebuilt and true worship will be established. Now, what's the result of true worship? Well, we go into the third vision and we see that God is going to return to the people, and Jerusalem is going to be expanded and glorified. It says in verse 8, Thus says the Lord of hosts, After glory he has sent me against the nations that plunder you. The glory has gone out. It's drawing the people back. In verse 10 it says, Sing for joy and be glad, O daughter of Zion, for I am coming and I will again dwell in your midst. Verse 11, I will dwell in your midst, and you will know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. Well, Ezekiel saw that in a vision. I'm sure that when Zechariah and Haggai finished building the temple, they probably did not actually see the glory of God move into it. But here's the promise that God will return to them now that the altar has been rebuilt. And what will it be like? Well, a young man at the beginning of the vision went out to measure Jerusalem to see how wide it is and how long it is. And an angel said, Tell that young man not to bother, because in verse 4, Jerusalem will be inhabited without walls because of the multitude of men and cattle within it. For I will be a wall of fire around it, says the Lord, and the glory in her midst. So Jerusalem is going to expand. The land will be restored, and Jerusalem will be so large, and it will be so peaceful that they won't have walls, and there will be this combination of city and land that we spoke about in the earlier lectures. Now, there's a problem that the exiles face, and that is that the priests are defiled. The high priest himself is defiled. Now, in the Mosaic system, it was the high priest who cleansed everybody else. But how do you, what do you do when the high priest himself is defiled and the entire system is torn down? Well, it was Moses who consecrated Aaron to start with, and it is Zechariah as a prophet an heir of Moses who will have to consecrate Joshua the high priest. And now we're at midnight and it's time for Passover and the people are unclean. And just as at Passover in the Exodus, God declared his people righteous and drove Satan from their midst. So here, Satan is accusing Joshua the high priest. This is in vision number four in chapter three. This is confusing, I know. Vision four is in chapter three, but there we are. Vision 5 is in chapter 4. Well, now we're in Vision 4 in chapter 3, and we find that Joshua, the high priest, is being accused by Satan. He's covered with filthy garments, but God says to cleanse his robes and put the clean robes on him, and now the system is being restored. The priests are being restored to their work as the temple is rebuilt. The temple is rebuilt. That's seen in the building of the altar. Jerusalem, God is moved back in. Uh, Jerusalem is going to be uh, glorified. And now the priests are being set back into motion. You see how the world is being restored here. That's the idea. These are not just a whole bunch of little symbols that we can take, isolate one by one and say, Jesus fulfilled this, Jesus fulfilled that. It's true, and we can't see in these lectures how Jesus fulfills all of these things. Jesus tells us in Luke 24 that everything in the Old Testament is fulfilled by him. What we want to see here is a rebuilding of the world and a rebuilding of the temple. Jesus said that he himself was the temple and so we could start there. But now the world is being rebuilt and the world is being cleansed. The priests are being reestablished in the heavenlies to carry out the heavenly ministry. And what happens? What happens when the temple is restored and the priesthood is restored? well, then light goes out to the world. And that's the meaning of the fifth vision. After the transition at midnight and the sun starts to come back up way around on the other side of the world, we know it's going to get lighter and lighter. And we have a vision now inside the holy place of the lampstand. We've moved from the, uh, and I I should say this, we have moved from the garden, the court, (coughs) where the myrtle trees were and where the altar was, And we have seen God go into the temple and now we have come into the holy place where Joshua is unclean and his clothes are cleansed inside there. And now we see a vision of this lampstand. Instead of seven lamps on it, there are 49 lamps. Tremendous light and spiritual power and energy is flowing from this lamp because of the oil that comes from God. And it flows out in verse 7. Who are you, great mountain? Before is a rubble, you will become a plain. In other words, the mountains of the world will be reduced by the influences of the gospel as God's people carry them out. They will go to and fro throughout the earth, and they will bring light to the world and conversion to the nations. Now, this actually happened. You see, it's odd. When we get to the New Testament, we find that there are synagogues all over the world. When we get to the day of Pentecost, we find there are Jews from every nation under heaven. And there are these God-fearing Gentiles. Uh, Jesus complains against the Pharisees and says, you traverse land and sea to make one convert, and yet you convert him to a false religion. Well, what's happened? None of that was going on during the period of the kings. And the difference is that even though Israel was supposed to minister to the nations, She didn't, and there wasn't enough spiritual power. But now in this new heavens and earth that's being built, there's going to be tremendous spiritual power. There's going to be tremendous light. And even though this temple won't be much to look at, Ezekiel tells us that in reality this is the greatest temple so far. Ezekiel tells us that there's a river flowing out that's going to change the world and take the gospel everywhere. And Zechariah says the same thing, that in spite of appearances, in spite of the fact that the candelabra will actually only have seven lamps on it, in reality there's 49 lamps and that the energy of the Spirit is being poured out. Now, in uh, visions 6 and 7, which are kind of a pair, Ezekiel goes back outside uh, and looks over the land. And he sees in the sixth vision, which is in chapter 5, verses 1 to 4, that the reestablishment of the temple will bring purity to the land and that the law of God will judge those who break it and the wicked will be driven out. In the seventh vision, verses 5 to 11 of chapter 5, he sees wickedness gathered up and thrown into a pot and carried out of the land altogether. So, here we have a vision of a restored land. The Garden of Eden has been restored in the temple and now the land itself is being purified and restored for the people of God. But that's not all, because the last vision, as the sun comes up and as night comes to an end, is a vision of the gospel influences going out to the four corners of the earth and all this evangelistic work that is going to take place during this period of history, during these heavens and earth. Chapter 6 gives us that vision, the eighth vision. I lifted up my eyes again and looked, and behold, four chariots. Remember what these chariots are. They're four of the ten chariots that carried water. And they're coming forth from between the two mountains. The mountains were bronze mountains. These mountains are Yachin and Boaz. And these chariots are coming out of the temple bringing heavenly influences. And they're going to go out to the world. And he sees that they're like the four winds of heaven. They're going to the north country and to the south country carrying God's judgments. But also carrying grace. Because God's judgments will be satisfied. In verse 8 it says... See, those who are going to the land of the north have caused my spirit to rest in the land of the north. And so the gospel influences are going forth. Well, this is a tremendous change. It's a tremendous dynamic. And in this new heavens and new earth, after the exile, God's people will be more powerful and more spiritual than ever before, even though they won't have the same visible glory. Well, there's one other observation we can make about the new heavens and the new earth. Just as the temple that Ezekiel saw was not really built, instead a much simpler temple was built, so uh, what Zachariah sees about there being no walls around Jerusalem doesn't actually take place. The whole book of Nehemiah tells us about the building of the walls around Jerusalem. And that's important because those walls symbolized God's protection of his people. And in terms of the actual real world situation at the time, they needed to have those walls. But even so, they knew, because of Zechariah's vision, that God was blessing them everywhere and that they, He was their true walls. In summary then, the new heavens and the new earth that were constructed after the exile, they had a rebuilt temple. And once again, there was the highest heavens and the firmament heavens and the earthly sanctuary. And once again, there was a restored land and a restored world. But this time, uh, there was an advance in glory, as there is each time. And this time, God's spiritual energy would be flowing out as never before. Light would be shining. Water would be pouring out. Horses and chariots would be taking divine influences, both judgment and grace, to the four corners of the world and thus the world would be prepared for the final heavens and earth that would be brought in by the new covenant.
0: Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis, and on Facebook if you just search for our name.